God does unexpected things. And he uses unlikely people for his glory. And please find Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bibles and stand with me. We're going to read two verses that make that very point. That God uses unlikely people and does unexpected things for his glory. We're going to read Hebrews 11 verses 30 and 31. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. See, one of the wonders of Christmas and of the life of faith is that God uses unlikely people and does unexpected things for His glory. God organizes outcomes that blow people away. He does what no one else can do. He chooses to use people that no one else would. Like a virgin named Mary. Like a prostitute named Rahab. Though separated by hundreds of years and vastly different lifestyles, There is a noteworthy parallel between the two. Rahab became the mother of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Mary, as we know, became the mother of Jesus, the redeemer of all who come to him by faith. Now Rahab's story began with spies and lies in Jericho. Before we get to that, I want to fast forward just a minute to the destruction, the actual destruction of the walls of Jericho, which were a huge example of the faith of Israel in action. Verse 30 tells us, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Whose faith? Joshua's and Israel's. Israel had crossed the Jordan. The Jordan River was flooding, blocking any retreat. There was Jericho, the men of war standing on its massive walls, which had stood for hundreds of years. Joshua, who had had an encounter with God, recorded in Joshua chapter 1, much like Moses, God spoke to Joshua and said, take off your shoes because the ground you are standing on is holy. And in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, what God is going to was God was going to do. Excuse me, in Joshua chapter six, verse one. Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. It was a foregone conclusion that they would overtake Jericho. God gave precise marching orders to to Israel as well, through Joshua. His instructions defied human logic. They didn't make sense, humanly speaking. Here's what they would do. Uh, First of all, they would be in order like this. Uh, Soldiers. Then seven priests carrying ram's horns called shofars, trumpets. Then the Ark of the Covenant of God right in the middle. 
and then the people, and then the rear guard of soldiers. And for six days, they were to march around the city in complete silence, without saying a word. Occasionally, the priests would blow their trumpets. And on the seventh day, they were to maintain that silence, go around the city again and again and again until Joshua told them to shout. Sound like a good plan? There was no reason, humanly speaking, for Israel to think that what God said would happen. That the massive stone walls of Jericho would crumble after either walking around them for seven days or by blowing trumpets and shouting. But only a firm belief that God would do what he said he would do and that what would happen, because God said it would happen, would happen. That's the only thing that can explain why they did what they did. On the seventh day, the walls fell flat. Israel burned the city, proving once again that the impossible things are possible with God. The things that we think could never happen are possible with God. Are you facing a Jericho in your life today? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Jot this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. They are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Jericho's fall by faith. Now prior to the fall of Jericho, two men had come to town. They were Israelite spies sent to scope out the land that God had promised to his people. And they found an ally in Rahab. Now we see that in Joshua chapter 2. Now in Hebrews 11.31 it says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. We see that story in Joshua chapter 2. The spies come into the city and, and Rahab hid them from the authorities. In fact, what we see is that her first act of faith involved three lies in one. Uh, she said she didn't know where the spies came from. She did. She said that they had left town. They didn't. And she didn't know where they were. Yes, she did. She hid them under flax. Proves that you need to eat flax, right? That's good for you. She hid them under the flax. She welcomed them in peace, and hers is a vivid picture of acting in faith. Faith proved by its actions, as James chapter 2 talks about when it speaks of Rahab. She hid them in their home, in her home. 
Rahab, the harlot. An unlikely candidate for Hebrews 11 hood. Some try to make her into a hostess or innkeeper. She was neither of those. The Greek word for her occupation it was porni. Uh, it signified immoral conduct. She sold the love that a husband and wife ought to share. But God got a hold of her. God changed her heart. God changed her life. See, in Rahab, we have a picture of trust. In Joshua chapter 2, the, the thing that stands out the most to me is that she, what she said to the spies. In verse 8 of uh, Joshua chapter 2, before they had been put up on the roof, and, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Well, how did she know that? She knew by faith. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. See, she had heard that they served a miracle-working God. And and, and they had heard about what they did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom they utterly destroyed. And she says this, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man, no longer because of you. And then she professes, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. It's a profession of faith. Profession of faith in the God of the Bible and the God who created the world in God Almighty. The people of Jericho were disobedient. They, they rejected God. Uh, in Hebrews eleven thirty one, where it says that she did not perish along with those who were disobedient, what it means is that they rejected God completely, and therefore they rejected what God said completely. What it means is they knew that God wanted them to act righteously, but they didn't. They ignored his word. So Jericho rejected God and rebelled against him, and in contrast, Rahab believed God. Rahab confessed truth. The Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Her profession of faith. She staked her life on the fact, on the belief that God is good and that he would save his people and not only his people, but all who put their trust in him, even her. Lowly Rahab. Rahab, by an act of faith, Welcome the spies and escape the destruction that came upon those who refused to trust God. But her faith did not get a dress rehearsal. Yesterday, the Grace Singers had a dress rehearsal in preparation for tonight's Candlelight Christmas. Dress rehearsals are really good things, especially for choir directors. I remember fondly my days of singing in the sanctuary choir at Downey First Baptist several years ago. I remember that uh, vividly, and I remember loving the rehearsals better than being in front of everybody to sing. I love to sing to an audience of one. Dress rehearsals are great. They're very good. They serve a very good purpose for all involved. But Rahab's faith had no time for a dress rehearsal, no time for a run-through, no prep time to get it right. And see, her reaction showed the reality of her faith by her actions. 
See, every time Rahab's faith was displayed, it was done as the main event. In, in Joshua 2, 4, she hid the spies. In verse 11, she professes faith in, in God Almighty. And then we see her do something else. It's kind of the most well-known thing about Rahab. But she, she asked him, she said, Hey, uh, when you sacked the city, could you save me? And not only me, but my family as well. Looking out for her, for, for her family. And they say, if you will do this one thing, if you'll follow what we say, stay in your house. Don't go out and, and, and hang this, this red cord from your window. When we see the red cord, we'll know. For it, it, it looked back 40 years to the Passover where the children of Israel killed the Passover lamb and painted the, the blood on the sides of the tops of their doors and, and stayed inside while the, the angel of God did his work. Tied the scarlet rope. But uh, for Rahab, faith happened in real time with no prep time. And each step of faith produced confidence to take another step. That's how it is with faith. Each step of faith we take produces confidence to take another step of faith. Israelites stepping into the Red Sea. Faith in action. The seemingly absurd command to walk around a city seven days and the outcome, a powerful demonstration of God's promises made real through obedience. Unlikely Rahab believing. Mary singing a song of praise to God after she found out she'd be the, the mother of the Messiah, and before she started showing. As Elizabeth said in Luke 2.45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. As a result of Rahab's faith, she experienced salvation. She was saved. Physically as well as Spiritually. When the spies came to her, they found that she knew a lot about Israel's victories beyond the Jordan. She indicated her belief in the uniqueness of Israel's God. And because of this, she didn't betray the spies, but she joined forces with them. And she wanted to be identified with Israel. She wanted to be identified with the Lord, and she acted on her belief. She accepted by faith the fact that God had given Canaan to Israel before they had it. And she was spared along with her family from the destruction that came upon the whole place. In Joshua chapter 6. When they defeated Jericho. Verse 22. Joshua says to the same two spies that met Rahab said to them, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. They did it. Verse 25 tells us, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She experienced salvation. The classic symbol of of Rahab uh, and her great faith that revealed her great faith was that scarlet cord, that red rope that she hung from her window over the wall of Jericho. 
Her hope was in the rope. Her rope was her hope. And that sounds kind of funny. You think, well, you just made up a poem, Mike. It's more than that. It's more than that. Her faith invited their saving work. And she said to them when they promised, okay, if you do this, we'll spare you. She said, let it be as you have said. But the Hebrew word for rope is the same word for hope. Uh, she confessed Jehovah as God, and her scarlet rope signified the hope that she had that he would save her, that she would be delivered, that she would be forgiven. The blood of Jesus is our scarlet rope, if you want to make a connection. We who believe, as 1 Peter 1 tells us, are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood, hung on a cross, was buried, and was raised from, to, from death to life. We're born again to a living hope when we come to faith in Christ. Now, Rahab has a connection to Christmas. Her connection to Christmas is that she was in Jesus' family tree. Rahab. Earlier, we, we sang the Christmas song, What Child Is This? It's a beautiful song, but when you look at Jesus' family background, you're tempted to, to ask, Whose child is this? Because there are so many uh, interesting connections in, uh, in his genealogies. There are so many people with questionable backgrounds. There are some in Jesus' family tree that we uh, have, co- have uh, promoted to superhero faith that never would have seen themselves like that. We promoted them to superhero status and they wouldn't have seen or asked for that. People like David, with a checkered background. Or people like Josiah, even Mary herself. There are others with less than stellar records. Some who would have been considered the black sheep of the family, or worse. Now there are two genealogies that we see in the Gospels tracing uh, Jesus' ancestry. Uh, One is in Matthew, one is in Luke. And they each tell a different part of the story. Matthew chapter 1 traces Jesus' lineage through Joseph. Luke traces it through Mary. Matthew traces it forward from Abraham to Joseph. Luke traces it backwards from Jesus all the way to Adam. Both lists show Jesus' kingly heritage. Matthew showed how the royal line passed through uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Luke showed how his physical descent from David came through Mary's line, even though Mary is not named in the genealogy in Luke. But Jesus' family tree is a vivid picture of sovereign grace. God's grace. See, everybody in in Jesus' family tree was a sinner in need of a Savior, even Mary. It reminds us that nobody but Jesus is 100% clean. Nobody. Now, it was unusual for women to be listed in biblical genealogies, but Matthew lists five. Rahab. She received God's approval for her faith. She was a prostitute. She was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. She was spared and honored by her faith. Tamar, a Canaanite woman who posed as a person of ill repute to trick Judah. She's in there. Uh, Then there's Ruth, 
We know a lot of good things about her, but she was a Moabite woman who worshipped idols. There's Bathsheba, uh, Uriah's wife who committed adultery with David. And Mary, in the line, who had to deal with the perceived stigma of being pregnant and not married. You've got uh, the men and women of Jesus' family tree, everyone a sinner in need of a Savior. And it shows how God's sovereign grace overcomes mankind's sin. He breaks through hardened, deceived, misguided hearts and, and gives us another chance. Drawing us near. God's grace touches us. God's grace touches us and carries out, carves out a, uh, a place for us in God's plan. Our part in God's, in God's uh, beautiful story. How do we fit into the unfolding saga of what God is doing? I mean, you, name the, you name the sin, you name the lifestyle. How can we ever be made right with God? How could a prostitute be turned into a hero of the faith? Only God knows and only God can. I've got one nagging question. One question that I can't figure out. Why was Rahab still known by what she used to be? Forever in the biblical record. It it confuses me. My best explanation is this. It's for identification purpose only. So that all would know who it was that God saved. So that all through the ages would be able to point back and know who God saved. And it highlights God's beautiful, abundant grace. See, um, think about Rahab. Even though her life was changed, she had to live down a reputation. Overcoming reputation is an issue many of us have dealt with or deal with now. Sometimes it's because we act in ways that perpetuate it. Other times people don't want to forget our sin. They don't want to forget our background. They want to bring it up, even in subtle ways. Paul dealt with it. You remember the church did not believe, could not believe that he was truly a believer in Jesus? That he was truly a a Christian? Paul dealt with it. See, with Rahab, there's good reason to believe that after her encounter with the spies, she cut off her old way of life. But the title stuck. Whatever your reputation, you may feel as if God can't use you. As if he doesn't want to use you because of something you have done or because some, something someone else has done that has interacted into your life. You think that God must reject you because of how sinful you are. That's why Jesus died. Jesus died for our sins. The very sins we beat ourselves up about. God's grace covers our sins by Christ's blood. It's as simple and as profound and as deep as that. So you may think that God must reject you for how sinful you've been. See, if you're a Christian, 
God wants to use you not because of anything you've done or haven't done even, but because of what Jesus has done. And if you're into beating up yourself about things that God has already forgiven in your life, here's a few truths you can tell yourself or others. Number one, God is not angry with you. If you've come to Christ, your sins are forgiven, you're covered by the blood of Jesus, God is not angry with you. He's not shaking his finger at you and making sure that you don't step out of line. But often we feel like we have to, we have to toe the line and be perfect because of our past life. And if we get out of line ever so much, God will just you know, pull the trap door on us and out we go. God is not angry with you. He is not out to get you and he doesn't hate you. <laughs> Number two, God loves you. As simple as that sounds, God loves you and he made you and he wants you to experience his grace and his mercy. I keep something in my Bible ever since probably my second week here. It just says grace and mercy. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Norm Schrock gave me that, I think, our second, my second weekend. God's grace and mercy. God wants us to, to experience that. He loves you. And number three, God wants to forgive you. If you're in Christ, he already has forgiven you past, present, and future. But if you don't know Jesus yet, he wants to forgive you. God doesn't hold things against us like, he, like we hold things up against ourselves or others. Number four, God's mercy and grace are more than enough. His mercy and his grace are more than enough to cover Whatever it is that you're holding on to that is that's so bad in your eyes. See, it was so bad in God's eyes. That's why he nailed it to the cross with Jesus. God's grace and mercy are available to all who will accept it. All who will receive it by faith. And those of high reputation don't often... Uh, Express their need for God. And God chooses often to use those of less reputation to show his greatness. Jesus made himself of no reputation. The highest became the lowest to save us. I'm sure you've seen a lot of price tags this Christmas season. You see a lot of price tags, whether you're shopping online or in the stores. Some of those price tags are just simply outrageous, and others, they're, you know, reasonable. And some are really good deals. But how about the price tags we put on people? Rahab was seen as cheap, worthless, ruined. Mary, viewed as soiled, impure. Maybe you've been given a huge markdown. Thrown onto the uh, clearance rack. Written off. Sold short. Thrown onto that, the trash heap. Or so it feels. Or you've done that to somebody else. God is the one who determines real worth. 
and value. Jesus always elevated people's value. Never put them down lower. There will be a day. There will be a day when everything will get its appropriate price tag. And real worth will come into its own. And we wait for that day. We hope for that day. We yearn for that day. But until then, we can rest in the knowledge that God's the one that fixes our value and that in Christ, no matter what anybody says, God changes us. In Christ, God changes us and He changes our identity. What we were before, we are no longer. What we are now is changed. No longer in Christ, no longer are we what we were before. We are now children of the King with all the dignity and honor that go along with it. The King of glory pursues us with His love. Our conscience reminds us daily of our need for forgiveness. And the King of glory offers it to us. And His name, His name, the name above all names, the name Jesus. Jesus Christ. See, when the accuser, when the accuser tries to throw in your face your old life or what you've done, give Him the name above all names. You know, his argument really is with God. He must take it up with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the name that calms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in his work. See, in Christ, we experience transformation. Transformation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That list pretty much covered all of us. (laughs) Add your own sins onto the list. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. But... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Praise be to God. Second Corinthians chapter five. It tells us if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Verse 17 The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, God changes us and he wants wants to use us 
in the lives of others to help change them as well. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see, speaking of family trees, and we've all got a few asterisks in our family trees. We might be the asterisk in our family tree. Uh, we're all in the same sinful human family tree. The people of Jericho, they refused God. They rejected Him. They refused to trust Him. Many of us have been there. Some of us may be there right now. But Rahab, on the other hand, turned to God. And just like her, when we turn to God, and for us, this side of the cross, when we come to faith in Christ, we're adopted into God's family. We get put into another family tree. And we've all got things in our backgrounds we're probably ashamed of. But God isn't interested in punishing us for our past. God's interested in our present. God's interested in the condition of our hearts right now, right this moment. See, Jesus punished himself for our sin. Our standing with God is forever changed because of what he has done. Because of his transforming grace, which takes our blame, which covers our shame, which removes our sin stains. And it buys back what was ruined and was lost. And God continues to use unlikely people and do unexpected things for his glory. Weak as we are, God enables us to respond to him by faith. And by faith we live no matter what or who is in our family tree. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that in Christ is the only place to experience life change. And I pray, Lord, for anyone right now who may not have experienced that life change. I pray, Lord, that even right where they sit, they could just... accept you, believe you, uh, acknowledge you, profess faith in you. Lord, uh, I just pray that they would turn to you now and be saved. And I thank you, Lord, that we who are in Christ are continuing to experience transformation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.